This is the Only in Miami show, sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Islands. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiamiradio.com. That's right. Our brand new radio stream is up. Check it out at onlyinmiamiradio.com. And if you're in the car and driving, stay tuned because we have a fantastic show for you tonight. We have two amazing authors who are going to be appearing at the Miami Book Fair November 12th through the 19th, live and in person. You've got to stay tuned because we have celebrity chef Norman Van Aken calling into the program to discuss his new book and from outside of town, but a book that is about Miami. We have Robin Farsad. He is coming in to discuss his new book, Hotel Scarface. So stay tuned. This is going to be a really phenomenal show. If you like stories, real stories about Miami, or if you love cooking, because we've got two amazing guests, but this is the part of the program where I get a few minutes to speak directly with you, the listening audience about issues of importance that impact us citywide and sometimes beyond. And tonight's episode I would like to speak with you guys about Walmart. So Walmart is trying to build a couple of stores in Miami-Dade County. And those stores are rather troubled in court, to say the least. Not only did I personally file a lawsuit against the city of Miami, the city attorney, and the planning director for improper notice of a public meeting, under the, the Florida Sunshine Law, today I am telling you here in a breaking exclusive news story that yet another lawsuit has been filed over an improperly noticed Walmart application, this time in the Miami Pine Rocklands. And you can find that on my Twitter account, at Grant Stern. I just published it and ran out the door to come to the studio today. But I'm going to give you a little bit of taste on the air live since this just happened. We just got the news not even an hour ago. And the story is entitled Miami residents sue to block Walmart from building on endangered Pine Rocklands forest. Miami residents have filed a lawsuit against Miami-Dade County for improper notice of a massive rezoning of South Florida's most endangered forest into a Walmart anchored mixed use development. The Miami Pine Rocklands Coalition began in 20, January 2015 after Walmart developer Ram Realty announced a plan to buy a sizable Pine Rocklands forest and pave it over to take advantage of the University of Miami's permission to make the site into 
a which which used to house their South Campus into an academic village. But in actuality, that meant they were going to put 900 apartments, an LA Fitness, a Chili's, a Walmart, and other, you know, commercial properties into this endangered forest. Well, my NPRC president, Al Sunshine, and vice president, Cully Wagoner, both guests on this program, who live directly across the street from the Pine Rocklands, sued. And they filed suit for the Miami-Dade County's failure to properly inform themselves and other neighbors of the hearing by withholding the property location, the layman's summary, and the mailed notices. All are required under the county code's mandatory notice provisions of Ordinance 33-310. Those notices mailed to the neighbors did not contain the planned Walmart shopping center or a 600-unit residential building, says the MPRC's lawyer, Kent Harrison Roberts. Robbins. Excuse me. And Robbins continued, if the court rules that the notices did not comply with the law, the changes in the zoning approved in 2013 would be null and void, and the developers in University of Miami would have to start all over again. Miami's endangered Pine Rocklands is the unique original habitat of Florida's southernmost uplands, and the section at stake represents the largest remaining natural forest community of its type outside the Everglades. It is the sole home to the newly discovered endangered species, the Miami tiger beetle, and numerous other endangered plants and animals. In September 2014, outraged Kendall residents confronted Walmart's development partner Ram Realty for the first time, where they admitted knowing that the property had endangered species, but limiting their study before buying the property. This is the first legal action in the Miami Pine Rocklands Coalition's fight to save their city's most endangered forest. Folks, you're going to see this in the news tomorrow, I promise. It's probably going to be in the New Times and the Herald, and it should be. This is a major action. It shows that Miami-Dade County shortchanged residents of notice in an extremely ill-conceived project to build a Walmart in South Dade right next to Zoo Miami. And check out Miami Pine Rocklands. It's a group on Facebook. There's also MiamiPineRocklands.org, and you can find out more about their fight. And I'd also like to give you guys an update with my little fight against the city of Miami as well, because tomorrow we have a court hearing. So if you're a court watcher, you can come out. 73 West Flagler Street, 8.30 a.m., courtroom 400, we will be there. We are fighting the city of Miami to obtain records that we requested about Walmart, including a cache of personal emails from the city's officials when the city officials have already been caught using their personal email in the Walmart project. And we are also contesting the notice that they gave in a 2014 meeting used to give Walmart their current permit today. Walmart has been frozen in Midtown for over a year and a half now, or about a year and a half almost. They've been frozen. They have not built anything in well over 12 months. However, their permit still stands. So we are still fighting. And I hope that you guys will check it out. There's a Facebook group for that as well. NoWalmartInMidtown.com. We'll give you a live update tomorrow of what happens in court. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Mama, oh 
we said we were royalty She even said it's staring in the face of poverty Is that insanity or vanity? I think it's nothing but the power of the mind Believe she put it in me Because I live on my dreams I get my fantasies wings One day I'm gonna be king I'm gonna make that woman so proud of her son I know you heard about change It's gonna change, come One question, will you be there? Will you be there? I'll be there with my hands held high in the air Like a champion Cause I demand the win Miami show and I'm your host Grant Stern you can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at onlyinmiamiradio.com that's right our entire stream at www.onlyinmiamiradio.com and we're back live with Norman Van Aken he's the author of Florida Kitchen and he will be appearing live November 12th through the 19th not the entire time but during the Miami Book Fair Norman thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight my pleasure, Grant. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Norman, can you please tell our audience a little bit about your lengthy career as a restaurateur in Miami? Because I think that a lot of people have heard of you, but maybe some of our audience haven't heard about some of your amazing restaurants yet. <laughs> well, I never assumed they've heard of me. So um, I began my cooking career in Key West, actually, Grant. And, uh, and that was completely by fluke. I was sick of the winters of Illinois, where I grew up, and uh, when I was 21 years old, I asked where a friend was, and some other friend said Key West, and I said, anybody want to go to Key West? And two brothers said, yeah, let's go, and we went that night. 36 hours later, we pulled into town, and uh, I fell in love with the tropics, and uh, didn't get a cooking job that time, but I came back, um, and then I came back in 1973 and got a job in an all-night barbecue place called The Midget and a strummer guitar player named Jimmy Buffett was trying out at the same time uh, playing a few songs out underneath the banyan tree. Really? And, um, <laughs> and, and Good I timing. Eighth, all through the 70s and, um, and I learned uh, what I would say that really the soul of Key West and Florida cooking there uncut on certified on, you know, Walmarted, <laughs> on, uh, on gussied up. And it was just a great break because um, the Bahamian, uh, the, the Cuban, the African, the Southern, all those influences were very dynamic and very pure in Key West. It was not yet the tourist town, some might say tourist trap, but tourist town that it became. 
And it was an education. It was an education that uh, actually was my culinary education. I didn't never did go to culinary school. Really? Um, that's, then I, no, that's cool. No, I, I, I've uh, delivered the commencement speech, and I've got an honorary doctorate <laughs> from Johnson & Wales, but I never did go to culinary school. Uh, and we'll talk later a little bit about our school that we're opening. But um, came up to Miami in 1992, uh, got a job on South Beach on Ocean Drive, working at the Betsy Ross Hotel, where I debuted two restaurants, one very casual called the Stars and Stripes, and one very experimental white tablecloth restaurant called Amano, which means by hand in Spanish. And there, um, really, the Miami audience first got to know me. Things things grew and things expanded rapidly when we opened up the original Normans in Coral Gables in 1995. And uh, now we've got Normans at the Ritz-Carlton in Orlando. And uh, very soon, soon this week, We'll begin our new restaurant uh, beginning uh, in Wynwood. Oh, that's fantastic. What's the address of the new restaurant? Let's talk about that. Well, we're in the Wynwood Arcade, uh, and it is um, a three-part endeavor, Grant. It is the um, first off, what we'll kick off with, which will be next week, will be number three, Social, and that will be up on the roof of the Wynwood Arcade, the only roof deck bar lounge in Wynwood, which we all know has become the hip heaven. And people will be able to lounge on amazing couches and furniture and underneath the stars and look out at the action below if they wish or cocktail with their friends and have small bites. I'm doing kind of a, the street foods of the world, snacks, things that you could eat sitting reclined, almost drinking, you know, amazing craft cocktails uh, underneath the stars and our protected uh, covering as well for if there is a sudden rain squall, we want our guests to be comfortable. Then in about two weeks, we'll open up three, spelled out three, and that's the fine dining restaurant, which will become the place that I've come back to cook in Miami after the number of years that I've been away. Uh, I think 2006 is when we um, stopped Norman's and moved, just moved our efforts to Orlando, but we're coming back 11 years now and, um, and debuting three. And then right after that, we will debut the um, In the Kitchen with Norman Van Aken Cooking School, which will be a hands-on cooking school for amateurs, not for a degree. There's no requirement. You could take one class, and that can be it. Or you could sign up for a few. You could take one class, see if you like it. There will be classes that will range the gamut for the most beginner to the most advanced. I will have guest teachers coming in from Miami and then also from around the world. That sounds like a lot of fun. So the, the lounge is going to open up very soon, right? Yeah, we're practicing uh, right now. We've uh, had drills going with our team. Staff on staff is what it's called. And then, uh, <laughs> and then uh, you go friendly, we, right, to the fa- friends and family and see if everybody's good with that. And we do the friends and family, right. And then um, we're, we open up. And um, we're trying to launch that and get that going and then turn our, um, our, uh, our team loose on opening up number three. Now, we've been doing drills, practicing, hiring, we're still hiring um, people for all positions in both endeavors, upstairs and downstairs. And so uh, young servers, young culinarians, or old practice culinarians, old practice servers, please come by and uh, join us as uh, Norman Van Aken comes back to Miami with in a big way. 
Now, the, the arcade, the Wynwood Arcade, is at 50 Northwest 24th Street. Uh, is there a website? Yes, uh, is there a website for the new restaurant? Yes. Uh, it's called Southbound Hospitality, www.southboundhospitality.com. www.southboundhospitality.com. Well, you know, this is a good time to bring up that in 1999, I applied for Norman's, but I never heard back. Well, so I, do, you, do you have well, some feedback for me? For <laughs> it's never too late, Grant. It's, it's never, never too late. late. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking about it. It's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but after college, you know, all that fun stuff. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's talk about the book a little bit, and we're going to continue after the break, of course. But the book is mm-hmm. is called, uh, very simply, it's called Florida Cooking. Um, but uh, give me the gist of it. What inspired you to, to write this particular book? If I may, let me just... Uh, Florida Kitchen, excuse me. Of, Florida I'm, Kitchen. I'm not, yeah. It's my it, the the publishing house, which is University of Florida Press. Um, wanted my name in the title as well. So if you look it up uh, or you go to the, your local bookstore, it'll be uh, Norman Van Aken's Florida Kitchen. And um, I wrote the book because gotcha. I felt it was time to have Florida represented in a rather recent iteration. The last great book that I know of that was written about Florida cooking was the Florida Cookbook, written by Carolyn Stewart and Jean Bolts, and that was about twenty. 20- four years ago or so. That's a while. It's a great book. And, it, and it's a while. And Florida has changed dynamically, dramatically in that period of time, as we all know, because we all live here. We're seeing it. We're part of it. And so I wanted to share what I'd found and also what I have created in response to what I have tasted made by others. And so in the Florida cookbook, the Norman Vanekas Florida cookbook, um, what I have is my personal expression, but written in a way that the home cook can make these recipes themselves. And I I really felt it was my um, responsibility to represent the totality of Florida. So unlike my previous books, uh, My Key West Kitchen or before that, New World Cuisine, um, that was primarily based right around the 305 in Key West. This one expands to the whole state. And so since we've been operating in Orlando for 14 years now, and we opened up our new restaurant about 45 minutes north of Orlando in Mount Dora last year, um, I've gotten the opportunity to know a lot more about the rest of Florida, the, the part of Florida that gets to the American South. And so people will see um, that focus, that shift going more toward the southern side of our cuisine, but not forgetting our Latin and Caribbean side at the same time, because that's still going to go on. And it's certainly um, part of the very reasons I fell in love with cooking. Yeah. I mean, that's, if you travel around Florida, there's actually numerous, numerous cuisines and some of them are similar and related. Like for example, uh, your Cuban cooking in Miami versus in Tampa, they're related, yeah. but, but very different. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, uh, and then when I wrote another book a number of years ago, now, uh, Called, uh, called, uh, what do I call it? New World Kitchen. Thank you. <laughs> New World <laughs> Kitchen. Um, that was all on South America and Central America. And, um, and wow, what an experience it was writing that book because really here in, especially in, um, in South Florida, in Miami and Port Lauderdale and around here, uh, we've had and continue to have the, the, you know, the propulsion of immigrant 
populations that make South Florida and Florida continually shift and change. You know, things that we really didn't know much about, Peruvian cooking uh, wasn't so well known 10 years ago in Miami, and now it's become quite a thing. And uh, interestingly enough, and you know this, I'm sure, but there's been a huge um, influx of people coming from particularly Vietnam to the Gulf side, uh, from Texas on through New Orleans, through Tampa. And that has shifted our uh, Florida kitchen a little bit in that direction, too. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to talk about some of the recipes that you included in the book after this break. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiamiradio.com. That's right, our entire stream at onlyinmiamiradio.com. And we are back live with Norman Van Aken. He wrote the book Norman Van Aken's Florida Kitchen, which is being featured at the Miami Book Fair. It starts this November 12th and runs through the 19th at Miami-Dade's Wolfson Campus in downtown. And Norman, thank you again for joining me on the program tonight. My pleasure, Grant. So uh, do you know when you're going to be appearing live at the book fair for folks that want to meet you in person? Oh, my God. I, I should know that off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> That's okay. They, we they we got, can look that up. They've got me coming in a couple times. There's different things I'm doing a slow food event uh, and demonstration. I, they, you know, I'd say go on their website because uh, I'm also in the midst of things going up to um, to do an event in um, uh, Orlando on Wednesday night, and then I'm going to Chicago to do an event in uh, um, over the weekend. So it's it's a very hectic time. And plus, as I told you and your listeners just a little while ago, we're just ob- about to open the the restaurant uh, and and the lounge. So 
I've got the the book fair website open. It's www.miamibookfair.com. And, and for anybody that's looking for more information about the book fair, you just go there. It's all there. They have year round programs, uh, you know, how to support the fair about the fair. And they even have a special link. If you go to uh, Miami 2017, they have like everything, the author guide, the fair guide, schedule events by program, and they even give you uh, a way to find just the weekend events. So let's talk about some of the recipes that are yeah. in the book because there's there's a few of them, and I'm just going to kind of pick a couple at random. Um, All right. <laughs> okay, let's go with uh, – here's one I think a lot of people might like to make at home. Spanglish tortillas with hash browns, cream spinach, and serrano ham. Well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've just always been so fascinated by Spanglish. I love to hear it spoken. Um, it reminds me of an old Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live bit where they go, da 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 blondie, and, and, you know, there's one English word that's dropped into it before they debut the song. And I feel that way in conversations many times when members of our team who are from various parts of Latin America are speaking to each other in that, in the language called Spanglish, which I think is, it's his own. It's his own. It's his own language. And so there's an iconic Spanish dish. It's called the Spanish tortilla. Right. And that anybody that's been to a tapas restaurant or been to Spain and been to one of the restaurants in Spain, there they know that the tortilla in Spain is completely different than the tortilla of Mexico. It is a kind of puffy, almost cheesecake tall omelet construction, usually made with garlic and potatoes. Um, to make mine Spanglish, so I hyphenated the Spain and the American English speaking parts of it. I didn't use straight potatoes. I used the classic diner hashed brown potatoes and I crowned my Spanish tortilla with hash browns and then embellished that with some rich creamed spinach like you would have in a, a, a steakhouse, a classic steakhouse, and then use some serrano ham to bring it back around to Spain a little bit. And that becomes a really fun uh, way of doing what I consider primarily a brunch dish that um, utilizes part Spanish, part English, part diner, part steakhouse. That, that's a lot of what I love to do is bring together these different elements. Right. So, I mean, it's it's got a few different parts, but it sounds like really, really good. <laughs> um, oh, man, it's good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm just, you know, you're, you're making my mouth water here, like live on the radio. Luckily, nobody can see it. <laughs> um, well, that's my job. I, that's, my, that's my responsibility. I need to make mouths water. So uh, let's talk about your favorite dish. What's your favorite dish in the entire book? And, I mean, a personal favorite. I know they're all your babies, but if you had to have one and only one, what would it be? Well, you know, it, it, I know it's going to change because uh, it, it happens with all of my books. This is, the, this is the sixth cookbook, my seventh book after the memoir. Um, but when we opened the new restaurant in Mount Dora in 1921, which is the year the restaurant was, the, the building was built, uh, 1921 by Norman Van Aken. People, many people have been to Mount Dora. I'm amazed at how many people have been and know of it, but if they haven't, it's a beautiful, rustic, pretty little town specializing in antiquing and the modernism museum, which is our partner. Um, we opened the restaurant and I utilized a number of dishes from the book because I wanted to separate 1921 from Norman's in Orlando at the Ritz. I want to create the different identities, but we did grant, we put a, um, 
this won't sound real Florida to some people, but I think it's part of the new Florida. Okay. But we do a Korea, Koreatown fried chicken, and that's served with Coca-Cola collard greens and macaroni and cheese. And okay. it's been on the menu since we opened up uh, 1921, and it, it seems like it's going to be one of those dishes that will be there um, <laughs> till I'm, you know, playing golf in the sky. <laughs> wow. It, you know, it sounds very good. I know that it's not the most traditional Florida dish, like, say, uh, you know, a little alligator tail from Dixie Fried. But right. No, no. I don't think it'll look to me to do that. I think people have always looked to me to see how I'm going to mix things up. I mean, there's one whole chapter called In a Fusion State of Mind. And many, many listeners won't probably know this, but I'm the person who originated the term fusion cuisine and that term has now circled the globe and um it's oh it has absolutely has people oh god you know people describe their food you know as and they could be doing describing their food as whether it's kind of a mashup between french mediterranean or it's asian french or it's asian uh i don't know maybe it's asian german god i don't know i've had uh um, cuban indian fusion that was pretty good yeah 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 yeah, and even back in the original days before Norman's at Amano, I had, you know, dishes that I would hyphenate. Like, I remember doing a Caribbean coleslaw. And um, and there were some people, some big, big restaurants that actually, um, uh, I don't know what we call it, uh, you know, uh, it's flattering when they, when they copy you, but they did versions of my Down Island French toast with foie gras uh, at a, a big famous restaurant in Miami that no longer is with us, but. Uh, it's always fun to see, you know, people riffing on dishes that I've created. But, but the people who read the book, who buy the book, they're going to get a lot of recipes. They're going to get a lot of, you know, tips from a from a chef. Uh, and they're going to get a lot of stories about, you know, what makes Florida the place that made me want to stay and want to, to continually learn from people. Because without me learning from other people, I would never grow as a chef. Like I said earlier in your show, didn't go to cooking school, but the world has been my cooking school. I'm always asking, like, where were you from? What, where did you come from? I, I mean, I met a young lady today who was born in Cuba, raised in Brazil. And moments later, we were talking about what cooking was like in her house. And that has been really, you know, I'll pull out my little pad of paper and notebook and start writing things down. And that will segue into dishes that might make it into a book and might make it into a menu. And Certainly, we'll make it into the new cooking school where we'll be teaching people all kinds of cooking from all around the world. Well, Chef Norman, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. Do you have a website that you'd like to give out to our audience so they can take this conversation online after the show or a Twitter handle? Um, yeah, I or mean, both. the one that's really best for for here would be the Southbound, uh, Southbound Hospitality website. So. Okay. Um, they're going to be able to find out what's going on with the new restaurant, the cooking school, the lounge, and um, and what I'm doing with uh, you know book tour and stuff like that. Oh, righty. Well, very soon, very very soon, you'll be able to come to in the kitchen with Norman Van Aken and, and uh, take classes that I'll be teaching with some other great uh, South Florida teachers and that I that we've, we've brought on, and then some guest teachers that will be coming in from everywhere in the world that might be there just one time, like a great opportunity to get to know them and, and be inspired by their, their passion. Well, Chef Van Aken, thank you for coming on the program tonight. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Grant.
And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. invites you to our second annual open discussion about cancer on November 4th in Coral Gables from noon to 2.30 p.m. Learn from our panel of doctors, healers, and survivors and discover how we can make a difference in the cancer field. The event will be held at the Adult Activity Center at 2 Andalusia Avenue. Free valet parking and your tax-deductible donations are welcome. For more information, visit h3hope.org or call 305-531-2046. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and our new stream at www.onlyinmiamiradio.com. That's right. Listen to all of our episodes at Only in Miami Radio on your phone, onlyinmiamiradio.com. And we're back live with Robin Farzad. He wrote the book Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. Robin, thank you so much for joining me on the program. Thank you, good sir. I'm excited. It's my pleasure to have you on. I'm sure this is going to be a fun one because this is all about some of the most colorful stories, only in Miami stories, there really are, right? Yeah, I mean, when I found this this story, the story of the mutiny right before I left uh, for college in 1994, um, I just couldn't put it down. Whenever I got homesick in my up north existence, I just kept researching it and kept researching it and putting out calls and putting out feelers in Miami. And before you know it, it's like a 320-page book with lots on the cutting room floor. Oh, my gosh. So the Mutiny Hotel in Coconut Grove, it's right across from the water there. Uh, give our audience a nutshell description of what used to go down over at the Mutiny. This was the hottest spot in Miami's nightlife scene in the late 70s and early 80s. I mean, mind you, this is back when South Beach was just a, a warren for, you know, of, of, of rotting uh, efficiencies for retirees. It was pre-kind of Art Deco revival. And anyone who was anyone, I'm talking about, you know, the Cars, Fleetwood Mac, Crosby and Nash, Neil Young, um, Rick James, and every doper in Miami and in Panama and Colombia would want to be seen and seen big at the Muni. It was like the closest thing to our Studio 54. And the interesting thing is 
you know, all these shady things happened, and everybody said, why didn't the cops just bust it? Well, because it was too valuable to watch as a kind of a, an aquarium to see how the ecosystem, how the, the flora and the fauna interact. Right. So in other words, like, the police were like, well, if we got rid of all these people, how would we catch everybody else? <laughs> I mean, I spoke to one detective. He said, I'd see dopers, uh, you know, sending loads of, of, you know, when a load would come in, they'd buy champagne, they'd buy Dom for everybody on the house. And I'd, I'd <laughs> jot down their license plate numbers after I'd follow them to the valet. And, you know, it was nothing personal. Unlike Cosa Nostra with the Cubans, uh, who I profiled three generations of Cuban exiles competing for control of the cocaine trade, you know, informing and, and, and uh, snitching and everything was, was, you know, cost of doing business. You had to do it. Of course, it could get you get, it could get you killed, and it did. Many people in the diaspora of the mutiny, but it wasn't a Cosa Nostra thing, and the cops knew that, and they played these guys against one another. So you're going to be at the Miami Book Fair, which is from the 12th through the 19th. When are you going to be available there? I know that, you, you know, your fans may want to meet you. You know, I, I, I just want to go to Sergio's and, and Coral Gables and Miracle Mile and just wear a guayabera and pretend like I'm, you know, I've always, I, I, I was raised in Miami. I was born in Iran, but I've always felt like a bit of an outsider, like an immigrant, you know, growing up in, in North Miami Beach and everything. So, you know, I'll just show up. I'll just show up and, okay. and hug everybody and wherever you want to see me, man. So let's talk about some of the amazing stories from this book, because the mutiny, like you said, it was the mecca of... All of the partying, all of the, you know, the drugs and, you know, rock and roll, sex, drugs and rock and roll. Okay, let's just put it that way. So what is one of your favorite stories from the mutiny? You know, one that blows my mind is um, one of the detectives telling me that, you know, yeah, sure, I'll take this assignment instead of being an allopat or someone else. I'll go into this luxurious club and how he was immediately... uh, quote-unquote, frisked by one of the gorgeous femme fatale waitresses. She clicked her heels up against his ankles to see if he had a, you know, MPD-issued ankle holster. A service and she'd pistol. she'd report back to the dopers who were paying her all this money to get their backs. I mean, you could be paid a buck fifty at minimum, minimum wage rate in 1979, but these guys are paying you $10,000 cash payoffs to drive them around, to, to give them a heads-up, to page them when their wives or their mistresses come in the entrance so they could leave out the back. And I love that, that symbiosis, the fact that it was kind of, you know, cover my ass, I'll cover your ass. <laughs> that's, that, you know, that's pretty crazy that the waitresses would be screening the, for cops. I mean, what kind it of establishment because, is like that anymore? <laughs> yeah, the man, management told me, you know, we were neutral. We told the cops we were neutral. But, of course, the, every, you know, so many cops were on the take. Uh, when Miami was a failed state in 79, 80, and 81. And so there were people tipping off that, yeah, there's going to be a sting underway in and around the mutiny. Somebody would tip off a waitress. The waitress would tip off the manager. They'd page in a code to the top dopers, and they'd get a huge cash payoff. And that was the way business was done. I mean, membership really had its privileges. (laughs) That is one heck of a membership. Who are some of the other colorful characters that went through the mutiny that our listeners would want to hear about? You're going to hear a lot about one Ricardo Monkey Morales. His nickname okay. was the Monkey, um, and and he, for many reasons. I mean, this is a Cuban exile who originally worked for Castro, and he became disillusioned and was flipped, and came and worked for the CIA. And he was raring for a rematch to take out Fidel Castro. And when that didn't happen, uh, this happened to a lot of Cuban exiles in the 1960s. They turned their skill set. They become freelancers. Like I'll smuggle pot. It's child's play. I'll do contract hits. 
I'll do assassinations, bombings, this, that, 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 that. And then Jimmy Carter becomes president, and they realize there's no rematch for uh, Cuba to take out Castro, so they move up to cocaine. And this guy privately was just so tormented, so homesick, uh, publicly was so macho, was, was shooting people, was testifying against people, was talking crap um, uh, to, to cops and fellow dopers at the mutiny. And I spoke with a waitress who he roomed with and told me at night he'd just sob his eyes out. He'd, he always thought that he should be dead by now. He had such post-traumatic stress disorder from the things that the CIA made him do uh, during the Cold War, the, the invasions, the mercenary duties in Africa. Um, and so there were lots of these people that were just, you know, with a lot of psychological wreckage that, that brought it to the mutiny. It should have been a paradise. Everybody should have been happy there, but everybody seemed to have a respective grudge. Yeah, a, a wild time, a wild, wild time. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, to put it in context, I think people don't really think of Coconut Grove, the neighborhood, in quite the same way these days because it's just gone through so many vicissitudes. Tell our listening audience a little bit w about what the Grove was like, that the mutiny could exist right in the middle of it and people would just kind of like turn the other way and not really be worried. Because if you saw that happening in Coconut Grove today, I'm sure that the uh, community council would take it up and <laughs> things would uh, get, you know, let's say investigated or bothered. So what was it like back then? Coconut Grove in the 1960s, let's say the inception, because the, the building was originally called the Sailboat Bay Apartments. It was built in 1968. It was supposed to be, you know, white, white-collar, exclusive. But by the time he put a private club in the uh, lobby in the early 70s, the late founder, it became aspirational for the most well-to-do Venezuelans. And then the Cubans envied them. And the Cubans are like, okay, we're not welcome in Coconut Grove, but I'll show them I mean, once I get the, the huge cocaine money and money is not an object, I will throw money around. There were literally dopers filling hot tubs full of champagne to telegraph that they were, you know, DTF for groupies and down to party and money was no object. So you immediately had what was kind of a sleepy hippieville. There were, you know, there were hippies, uh, I, like I described, but, you know, the, the scariest thing in the 1950s and 60s were the mailmen were afraid of the, the roosters that would run riled in coconut grove. People <laughs> left their, their doors unlocked, but it morphed into something international and cosmopolitan, and ultimately by 1980 and 1981, murderous. We had the Marielle boat lift, and people hear these stories about the top gangsters while they're on the, the flotilla coming to the United States, like, yeah, that guy, Willie, he's going to hook me up. He's going to be my rabbi. He's going to be my sponsor. So amazingly, I found Marielle refugees that within months of arriving here with nothing in their pockets, the shirt on their backs, they got tables at the mutiny and they worked their way up. It was almost this, this dystopian, you know, Ellis Island of sorts. Well, I mean, I think that's why you call it Hotel Scarface, because in the movie Scarface, which everybody's familiar with, there's that one nightclub where everybody kind of hangs out and they're pointing every, at everybody across the room. But the mutiny, it wasn't a big nightclub with dance floor in the middle. It was a little bit different, right? It was different. I mean, he, he converted a couple of floors of this condo uh, building into this club. And as, as, as demand boomed and it became like an alternative to the Playboy Club and all these fashion photographers wanted to stay there, all these models and celebs, it just kept bumping out and bumping out and bumping out. I think um, what's, what's, you know, what's different in this sense is, um, you know, there was nothing else going on around there. And by the time <laughs> Oliver Stone and Brian De Palma caught wind of it and they were staying there, Stone was in the throes of his own cocaine addiction 
as a screenwriter for what they thought was going to be a remake of this 1932 film, Scarface. And they were going to do it with a Marielle Refugee. If you look at the screenplay, and you could pull it up on IMDb everywhere, they accidentally referred to the Mutiny Club several times. They wanted to shoot at the Mutiny Club. Uh, go back and look at the Herald. Look at the old Miami News archives. Miami wanted nothing to do with that movie. <laughs> after no, not the at hell all. it went through in 80 and 81. The irony is, after it's become so iconic and it's been yeah, released, yes, so now 20, Miami Beach times, is the iconic area for this. <laughs> no, it's the it's the dopers who pull me to the side and say, you know what, Tony Montana was based on me. You could tell the world that. <laughs> That's so funny. That is so funny. Well, I'll tell you what, Robin, uh, what's your website and your Twitter handle so people who want to take the conversation online after the show can reach you? Yeah, my Twitter handle, and I I love your Twitter handle, is at Robin Farzad, R-O-B-E-N-F like Frank, A-R-Z-A-D. The website is hotelscarface.com. You could follow hashtag Hotel Scarface. It'll be at Books and Books, Amazon. Uh, back in my day, you know, it was Walden Books at the Aventura Mall, but that doesn't oh, exist the old anymore. Walden Books. Well, yeah. stick around after the break because we're going to keep going, and I have got a couple more questions about Hotel Scarface for you. But we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. on point and a walk is mean the crowd parts like the sea they can look but a touch they can only dream he loves a challenge so he licks his lips he's inspired by her arrogance his first words make her body tense she can't leave cause she feels his strength now she can't help but listen but she's down to her last defense and she says why you being so persistent he says i speak what i want into existence she never heard a man talk like this never seen somebody so confident driven to the point of death guess what he wants even if it means no rest Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co. iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we are back live with Robin Farzard. Farzad. Robin wrote Hotel Scarface and will be appearing at the Miami Book Fair International coming up this November 12th through the 19th at Miami-Dade College Wolfson Campus, which is in the heart of downtown Miami. Robin, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Oh, I'm loving it. So let's talk about some of the exclusive material that went into the making of Hotel Scarface, because you had a few interviews that nobody else has heard or seen that went into making this book. Who are these people, these mystery men? These are people who were some of the most notorious uh, dopers and 
assistants and accomplices in the late 70s and early 80s, who many of them, most of them have served a ton of time. And they've since reintegrated into the skyline, into the scene, restaurant owners, shop owners, um, you know, clinic owners, if you will. Um, <laughs> clinic owners. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and they're comfortable coming out now, what with statute of limitations and everything else. And so much, so much happens, you have to understand the ego is to see Narcos, to see Miami Vice, on such heavy replay on, you know, on, on TV, internationally, all these different people, the Cocaine Cowboy series and Billy and Alfred were so instrumental in kind of uh, the, the renaissance of interest in this that, that started 10 years ago. Uh, they want to come out and tell their stories. They're, they're only getting older. They don't want to take these stories to the grave. And when I found that all these things have been spoke out of this address, 2951 South Bayshore Drive, the hardest thing, frankly, was um, hurting the cats and convincing people and negotiating and, and saying, listen, you've got to be a part of this. Um, and many people didn't want to cooperate, and I had to uh, you know, use proxies to kind of get their stories out. So that was, uh, it was almost the alternate title for the book was Finding Scarface. I mean, if, Finding if Scarface, Scarface exists, like you know, it, would have been a, it would have been a composite of many of these guys. Um, Oliver Stone never uh, you know, wrote me back or Brian De Palma, but a lot of these guys were consulted. And in fact, they fielded calls like, do you want to consult a project about the American dream meets the Marielle refugee crisis? And they're like, no, are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, you know, slammed, the fo- slammed the phone down. And now they're like, uh, that happened. And I want to tell you about it. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, who uh, name like a couple of them, some of these folks that that really, you know, they, they're like just living quiet lives, um, successful lives, perhaps. But back in the 1970s. They were in the dance. Yeah, there's one, and you'll read about him massively in the, in the Miami New Times. That's the cover story this week. It's Owen Band. His, his brother was a state prosecutor at the time. And this is, I, this is stranger than fiction, like many of the stories are, is he had his heart set as a salutatorian of Boston University in the late 70s, getting into Harvard Law. It's the only program he applied to. And when he got waitlisted, he had a, a nervous breakdown, he became extremely uh, sick physically at Crohn's disease and uh, ended up in Miami on his parents' couch. They nagged him. He gets a job bartending at a discotheque. A handful of Cuban exiles start tipping him in high-quality Peruvian blow. Next thing you know, he's, he's sitting at the mutiny, and he gets introduced to this, this shady uh, older figure who kind of vouches for him, and he becomes a small-time cocaine runner. And he shows up at, he, you know, he shows up at uh, the, the Passover Seder with his prosecutor brother sitting across the table, and he asks <laughs> for the questions, I want to be the wicked son. You know, he shows up with a Coke spoon uh, and, a, and a Rolex and a Mercedes convertible. So, and, so wait a minute. In other words, he was the offensive line coach of the Dolphins back in the 70s? Oh, my gosh. The Miami <laughs> Dolphins were all over this place, by the way. If you think about Mercury Morris and uh, the people that were sure. busted. I mean, cocaine was ubiquitous. And that, the amazing thing is, you know, it was looked at at its inception in Miami as high class. It's something that dentists would get tipped in. Um, people wow. would, would function in it. It was, uh, it was an upper. It wasn't looked at as, you know, it had its, its crack up, upheaval, really, in the mid and late 80s. Sure, that would be very Miami. People were like, oh, you know, can I just pay you and blow instead of money? Of course. <laughs> That's Yeah, crazy. one story I got, you know, didn't make the book, was that uh, someone's going in for, uh, <laughs> to, get, to get her uh, gums excised because it's a side effect of doing a lot of cocaine and you rub it on the inside of your gums. You get these swollen gums. You get a hole in your septum like Stevie Nicks did. Not and so cool. Like, you know, yeah. The dentist is like, 
the whatever the oral surgeon's like, you got to stop doing this. By the way, where can I get some good stuff? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the world. <laughs> so, so I interrupted your story about the Harvard the, the Harvard Law reject, who suddenly became the black sheep in the family. Continue, please. He did, and he relished in it because he think he thought the system screwed him. Okay. Like I, I got the best grades. I, I, you know, I was a poor kid, and I was on financial aid and scholarship at BU, I, and I, I gave a speech. You know, he gave a speech on the value of an education, the meaning of doing the right thing, and within a year or two, ends up you know moving loads at the mutiny. <laughs> oh man, you know, uh, I, I think it's uh, Billy Corbin who said uh, Miami's a place where people come where they want to when they want to be somewhere else, someone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's my hometown, Grant, and this is a this is a love I'd say a love hate letter to my hometown. I had to do it. Um, you you could leave Miami, but it can never really leave you. And I've I've well, spent you know, twenty twenty years finishing this beast. Wow, that's a long time to research it. So I mean, you've really been like putting this together over that long a period of time. Yeah, and then finally, you know, a good literary agent says you have to find connective tissue. What ties all of these rogues and shady characters together? And I say, you know, maybe the hotel, the hotel itself is like a character. There's something very odd. Like, why did all these things emanate from this address? Why were all these characters and then some there? Um, there's, there's something otherworldly about it. Like, if you ever go to, um, you know, uh, what is it, um, Sedona, Arizona, you have these people that claim okay, they yeah. a vortex. Sure, and yeah. I think that there might be a, co- a vortex at the corner of South Bayshore <laughs> Drive in Peacock Park. <laughs> there's a Tara to it, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, let's talk about the, the mutiny today. Um, we've only got a few minutes left, but what, what happened to the mutiny after the 80s? Because obviously it's not the scene today anymore. So what went down? Why, why did it stop? Don't mistake what you see there today for the mutiny. It's just a skeleton of the original building. It, it became a victim of the savings and loan crisis and a victim of its own success. Once the owner sold it for a cool $17 million, um, at the end of 1983, you had all these competitors building places like Ends and Bitters, Cats, uh, Regines at the at the penthouse of uh, what was it uh, a very luxurious maybe the Grand you know, Bayshore Hotel or something like that, and everybody was copycatting and saying, "Come to our place. It's less shady." Read, you know, Marielle. <laughs> it's got more of a white clientele, and Miami Vice showed up, and Crockett and Tubbs would show up. Crockett, uh, who is it? Tubbs ended up you know, leasing a whole floor at the mutiny and he'd park his purple imitation Ferrari out front and hang out with Glenn Fry of the Eagles. But by then it was over the hill. I mean, this is a guy making $30,000 an episode. A lot of the dopers were, you know, selling kilos for 50000 a pop. So wow. uh, it became a victim of the savings and loan crisis uh, and a bad mortgage and actually was abandoned. It was seized by the government in the late 80s, abandoned uh, in 1989, the club was shut down, and Hurricane Andrew did a number on it. Uh, it was a, it was a, it was a den for homeless people, for freebasers, for goth people, for skateboarders, um, and that's when I found it abandoned and all, all but collapsed in 1994 during, I believe, the Coconut Grove bed race. And um, finally, an investor group decided, all right, we're going to be the ninth or tenth bid to try to turn this baby around and sterilized it completely uh, by the turn of the century. And I believe the last shady thing that happened there was O.J. Simpson returns to attempt to film a sex tape in 2001. But it wasn't, it wasn't the mutiny that he remembers from his playing days. Well, we're out of time, Robin, but it's been a pleasure having you on the program. Long overdue. Give our audience your website and your Twitter handle one more time so they can take the conversation online. 
Yes, you can go to hotelscarface.com is the book's website. It's available tomorrow. My Twitter handle is at Robin Farzad, and I'll be at Books and Books in the Gables on Sunday at 6 p.m. if you want to stop by. Well, again, Robin, thank you so much for coming on the program, but that is all the time we have for tonight. I'd also like to thank Chef Norman Van Aken and suggest you take a look at his book, Norman Van Aken's Florida Kitchen. And we'll be back next Monday night from 7 to 8 p.m. with special guest MSNBC host Lawrence O'Donnell. This is the Only in Miami show.